1: With Thrive Radio. I'm your host, Amy Montgomery, entrepreneur and digital marketing agency owner. Today, my guest is Les Lent. He holds 20 years experience as a sales professional, sales manager, and sales leader. He has been responsible for and leads teams ranging from seven professionals to teams that in excess of 70, generating annual revenues ranging from $30 million to over $300 million. Les, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm excited for today's podcast. So when did you first discover that you were really good at sales and how did you become a sales trainer?
0: The first discovery was when somebody said, you should get in sales because you have the gift of gab. <laughs> I found out that, uh, the gift of gab is good at setting meetings and good at good for having conversations with people, but not necessarily makes you good at selling. My very first sales job was a just an abject failure. I started selling real estate. Somebody said, Hey, you should get into real estate. The market's hot. You'd be great at sales. You're friendly. You're outgoing. You're loquacious. And I did. And I failed like within a year I was starving. And the reason was not because I wasn't good at real estate. It was because I didn't know what profession I was in. I thought I was a real estate professional. So I focused all my attention on contract negotiation and law and real estate law and the marketplace. And all of that stuff, the subject matter expertise, but I didn't spend any time learning how to be a sales professional. So fast forward a few years later, I had an opportunity to get into sales again. It was probably around 1995-ish. And this time I had the subject matter expertise, I had a little bit more maturity and the market was good. So I spent three or four years making a great living, selling stuff, but uh, it wasn't, I met a sales trainer, a guy, a former partner of mine, he's since passed away. His name's Jerry Leo. And my company hired him. He came in and I'm sitting here going, great. Another sales trainer, another Friday wasted on some motivational speaker. And he came in and the very first thing he said was the profession of sales is for sales professionals. And that rung a bell with me because my career was going okay, but I wasn't like hitting that top 10%. I wasn't soaring with the Eagles, so to speak. And all of a sudden my mindset shifted from selling the products that i was selling to really focusing on being a sales professional so i started reading i started taking courses i started writing not to publish but just i'd read and then i'd write down what it was that i had captured or took away from that book and i quit worrying about being a subject matter expert and i started focusing on being a sales professional instead of a sales guy quit looking for the tricks and the tactics that book 50 power closes i threw that away and just focused on being really good at sales And then over time, as I got better and better at sales, my company would start to tap me to go do training for other people and groups. And they were flying me all over the country. And then about 2009, I guess it was, I got downsized. They're like, you're making too much money. The markets, the economy's fried and the market is all topsy-turvy. Here's a big fat severance check. Bye-bye. Like, crap, what do I do now? And the gentleman that I just referred to, I had become friends with. And he said, hey, you should be a sales trainer. You should come work with me. So I partnered up with him and I spent about a year really focusing on how to take a curriculum that I had picked up from him and apply it to different industries, not just the industry I came from. And I found after about nine months or so, I had the knack for figuring out how to apply a specific sales methodology or philosophy, if you will, to just about any B2B or even B2C setting. And the rest is, as they say, history. First sales job sucked fail. Nobody was surprised. Second one, I was pretty good at. And then I made that shift about subject matter expertise is, or it's your customer, it's your prospect's minimum expectation. And yeah, you have to have that. But if you don't couple that with some mad sales skills and understand that your job is really to help somebody navigate that sales process, you're just going to be a commodity like everybody else. It's like me too, me too, me too. So anyway, that's how I got here.
1: I love it. And walking through your journey, what are you grateful for?
0: The mentorship. The mentorship from my partner who I mentioned, Jerry, when before I was his partner, we became friends. And I think the candor is one of those things that people pay a lot of lip service to. However, I've been really fortunate in having worked with and worked for some really solid people that weren't afraid to be candid. And what I mean by candid is they didn't come in and say, you suck at this, you should do this. They'd say, Here's what I'm noticing that you're doing. And it was hard to hear some of that candor, but because they were, they cared about me because they were good mentors, they were giving me really good critical feedback. And it makes a huge difference when somebody says, Hey, you tend to interrupt people all the time. And when you do, you lose them. It's hard to hear that. But when you do hear it, and if you take it with the intent and the spirit that it's intended, all of a sudden it's easy to, or it's, it's simpler, not easy, simple, but not easy to make that mind shift to say, I need to stop doing that. But if nobody tells you that, you're just going to keep doing the same stuff over and over wondering why you're not making any progress. So I think that's the, probably the one thing I've been most grateful for in my entire career is getting critical feedback and candor from people that care about me.
1: So what are the top two things that hold most businesses back? <laughs>
0: the top two things that hold most businesses back are pretty simple. It's people and process. And I say that because as a sales trainer and a sales coach and a sales consultant and all of those things that I brand or market myself as, I talk to a lot of business owners, a lot of CEOs, a lot of sales managers, and I talk to them about their goals, about their aspirations, about their potential, right? And potential and a goal are two radically different things. And oftentimes what I find are sales sales leaders and business owners and CEOs, oftentimes they're happy, but they're not satisfied. They're happy. It's like things are going good, but we're not really hitting our stride. We're not breaking through to that next level. And I start asking questions. I said, why do you think that is? And the answer that I get over and over is I don't know if I have the right people and I'm not sure if they're doing the right things. And that's our default. That's our go-to mode. When things aren't going well and we're in a leadership role and we're running a team, it doesn't matter if it's a sales team, an operations team, a delivery team, a, an accounting team, it doesn't matter. When things aren't going well and you're in a leadership role and you start wondering why things aren't going well, our default mode is to just blame the people. I got the wrong folks and, or I have question marks about my people. And the other thing that holds companies back is this lack of documented or duplicate, especially in sales, a lack of documented or duplicable process. And if you don't have a process, you will always have question marks about your people. You're going to go, why is Amy killing it? Why is she such a stud, a rock star? I don't know, but she is. Let's go find more Amys. Right. Or you go, Bob, why is it Bob can like he can't close a door, let alone a sale. I don't understand. He's not doing that. So if you don't have a defined duplicable process that's tailored or customized to your business, you're always going to have question marks about your people. Why are they good? Why are they bad? Why are they mediocre? So I find that that's the two things that hold most companies back. So what I try and focus on with my questioning as a consultant is to really help my clients walk through the process, because once you have a process and you understand step a b c and d for your product your service suddenly the question marks go away about your people you go that's why amy's a rock star because she does these three things consistently bob is struggling because he doesn't do any of those things at all and the people that are in the middle that maybe they're doing something that's working or not but all of a sudden the question marks go away when you give that job a voice and when you give that sales process structure based in best practices. The question marks go away and now you can focus on the people. You can go, okay, here's where I got to take Amy in this scenario and I got to accelerate what she's doing really well so she's meeting her full potential. And then I got to take Bob and I got to give him the skill sets and train and focus him up on the areas that he's not doing well so he can start to meet his potential. Or maybe there's somebody that's just, they're a good person, but they're just in the wrong role as it was a Jim Collins in Good to Great. You got to have the right people on the bus and they got to be in the right seat. So when the process is right and it's well-defined and it's well-duplicated or it's duplicable rather, then it becomes easy to go right person, right seat, person, wrong seat, wrong person, wrong seat. And it takes, it, it be, everything becomes so much more objective. So that's the two things that almost always hold people back. And again, not to overstate this, but I think it's an important point. If you're thinking that it's your people, it's probably not. It's your process, but it's so much easier to blame somebody else to say, they're not like me, or they should know better, or they shouldn't have done that. So how are they supposed to know? So quit, I guess the single biggest piece of advice I would give business owners, if you're struggling, or if you're not getting where you want to go, instead of focusing on the people, make sure your process is right. And then you can worry about the people and it'll be so much easier for everybody
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I just talked to a business that I think was last week that was struggling with just that. And they'd say our founder, he's a rock star. He's been able to bring all these sales in and build these relationships. And he's amazing. And we've hired all these other account managers but none of them can do what he, what he does. And we're struggling with a process. We don't have a process. We don't, why do you think it's so hard for organizations to document that process? Is it just because it's such second nature to the one that is performing that they just don't think of how it could possibly be a process? Or why do you think they really struggle with
0: that? I love the scenario that you just painted for us. And the reason I love it is because it's so common. You have a business owner, a founder, a CEO. They have, there's four ingredients that a sales professional has to have to be successful and get on a little bit of a soapbox here. So forgive me in advance, but I get asked all the time, who should I hire? Should I hire men? Should I hire women? Should I hire young people? Should I hire veterans? Should I get subject matter experts and teach them how to sell? Should I hire sales pros and teach them the subject matter? And every time I get asked that question, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know enough about what you sell and who you sell it to, to tell you who you should hire. And there is no one size fits all answer. However, I do believe that there's four attributes that most top producing sales professionals have, and they have them in bucket loads. And I created an acronym for it. It's PACE, P-A-C-E. And the acronym PACE stands for passion, awareness, curiosity, and energy, passion, awareness, curiosity, and energy. So the passion is they're all in. They're passionate about what they sell, who they sell it to, and the company they represent. That's a CEO in a nutshell. If you built a business in your garage and like Apple or Hewlett Packard and a decade or so later, you're like the global leader in your space that was built on the passion of just a handful of people. And it's very common for business owners and CEOs to to grow organically, on their passion. So then the other three components are awareness. That's people that see things and hear things that other people don't. They have high levels of awareness, their radar's on high receive. And then the C is curiosity. They wanna know stuff that other people don't. So they'll ask one more question than the other guy or gal. And then the energy, what I mean by energy is they're not like Tigger and they're the Energizer Bunny going on. They understand that energy is a renewable resource. So they know when to bring their A game. They know when to slow their role. They know when to take a break. They know how to hit the reset button. They know how to manage their own personal energy, time, and effort. So back to the duplicable process, CEO, business owner, they have some success and on the shoulders of their passion, their company starts to grow. They hire employees. And now they're trying to find that salesperson or people to go out and do what the CEO or the owner or the founder did. And they don't have the same level of passion and the founder the ceo probably didn't know or document how he or she was successful so the reason that it's difficult for people to build a documented sales process is two things one you have to have it has to be based on some sound sales methodology so pick your method whether it's spin selling snap selling agile selling ninja selling what's some of the other ones there's action selling impact selling there's the challenger sale all of those are great all of them are great i tend to be a very simple guy so i believe my sales methodology is very straightforward i think the shortest course on selling is four words ask questions and listen it's that simple so if that's your methodology and that's your foundation in order to take that philosophy and turn it into a playbook, you need a template, right? We were talking about this before the podcast about from a digital marketing standpoint, the content is really important, but it has to follow a template based in best practices. So where I take my clients typically is if they need to have a I start off by saying, okay, we have to ask questions and we have to listen. That's how we sell stuff. So let's start by creating a list of every possible thing that you need to know about a prospect or a customer or a client, whatever vernacular you wanna use, start making a list. Brainstorm with your sales team, with your operations team, with your CEO, with the people that are actually out there doing it and saying, if we wanted to take on a new client or a new customer, what are, what's everything that we need to know about the buyer persona or the point of entry about their buying process, about the industry that they're in, about what a day in their life looks like, about you can make a list that could be as simple as 20 or 30 items. I've had clients that have built out, I call them need to know lists and they'll segment them. What do I need to know about the person? What do I need to know about the company? What do I need to know about the opportunity? What do I need to know about the industry? And they get like hundreds of these data points and it can sound a little bit overwhelming, but if you go back to the philosophy of ask questions and listen, okay. It's a little simpler now because it's how much of this stuff do I already know? Because I can go to their website. I can go on LinkedIn. I can tap into my tribal knowledge and go, okay, I know this. And then all the stuff you don't know that you need to know, that's where your questions come from. So the very first thing that I do when I build out a sales playbook for a client is I start extracting all of that information. What do I need to know? And quite frankly, you almost need to go a step back and say, what's my ideal customer? Who is my ideal customer? What's the demographic of my ideal customer? What's the geographic of my ideal customer? So the demographic is the what industry, what size is it SM? Is it small business? Is it midsize? Is it enterprise? What space do they have to be in? That type of thing. So that's the demographic. The geographic is super simple. Where do you want to sell your stuff? My, demogra- my geographic is simple. It's North America. It's the US. and Canada because I don't speak Spanish. So I can't go to Mexico. So that's my geographic. I know what my demographic is. And then the last question you got to ask is what's the psychographic or how do my best customers think? And when you can bottle that all up, then you can, that's the very first place to start. And hopefully most companies can get that captured pretty quickly, even if they don't know it off the top of their head, intuitively, they can figure that out. Now you can start to build your need to know list. What do I need to know in order to successfully bring a prospect through my sales cycle to the end? And then what questions am I going to ask to extract that data or information? And then what do I need to be paying attention to or listening for? So that's why it's hard, but it's also not difficult to fix. It just, it requires a little thought. It requires people to actually work on their business instead of working in their business. And that's the hardest part for an owner, an entrepreneur, anybody that's doing the job every day. I don't have time to be successful because I'm too busy doing my job. So that's my two cents on that.
1: Yeah. What's an indicator that you might not have the right people doing the right things?
0: Inconsistency, like it, there's always a rub in a company between sales and operations and the rub, always, the reason that operations doesn't like sales is the same reason that sales doesn't like operations. Forecasting. Nobody knows how to forecast. And in the absence of a duplicable sales process it's going to be really difficult for operations to understand how to deploy and allocate resources because they don't know what sales is going to do. Is it going to be a boom or a bust? And sales just wants operations to just be there. Like, hey, I got that. They're ready to go. They're ready to go. They're ready to go. So I think that the real issue becomes forecasting, right? So if I've got a duplicable process, I can more accurately... It, forecast and allow my operations team to deploy their resources. But if you can't forecast, if you don't know, hey, we reached out to this prospect, or this prospect reached out to us through our marketing efforts, if your closing rate is less than 30%, something's amiss. Because either one of two things happened, if the other 70% either should have never been a prospect to begin with, because they weren't really qualified, because you were chasing bad deals, or You got outsold or out hustled, or you lost the opportunity to status quo. So we get wrapped up in in closing rates and I think they're okay, but it's a lagging indicator. But I guess the direct answer to your question is if you consistently say, if I get somebody to agree to take this meeting or to do a product demonstration, whatever that is, and see a high level of conversion, something's missing. And the something that's missing is usually on the front end. And it's the asking questions to discover the person. What is it that they're trying to accomplish and why is it important to them? That's a real secret to selling. If you can just get somebody to tell you what they're trying to accomplish and why it's important to them, and assuming that your product and or service is going to fix both those things, the what and the why, selling is a lot simpler. But most sales processes are so woefully inadequate. It's just, it's if I throw enough spaghetti against the wall, something's going to stick. And that something is 30%. I'd rather see a 70% closing rate. Personally, I've seen clients that have taken their closing rates from sub 30 to 40, 50, 60, because they're only working with highly qualified buyers that fit all of those parameters that they've put in place to begin with. And they're not selling anything. They're just asking really good questions. And then closing is just the natural conclusion to a well-planned and well-executed sales call. So I don't know if I answered your question. I probably over-answered it, but- No,
1: it was good. Definitely. I agree with that. Especially like in, I started thinking about digital marketing and how people do that same thing. They start to, they don't measure anything, what's working for them. They see an ad and a tool and they start to throw spaghetti in the wall, trying everything to see what's going to work for them. And if you don't have a strategy of what, like you say, of what works, something that can be measured and something that's going to actually produce results, then you do, you, that's all you do. You don't know what's going to work. So you just try to. And how tiring is that?
0: You it's know? exhausting. It's yeah. exhausting. And, and when you talk about measuring stuff. There's a great book that I'm a huge fan of. It's called The Traction by Gino Wickman. And it's part of the entrepreneur operating system. And one of the biggest takeaways from that book is and there's lots of them but one of my biggest takeaways from that book was instead of measuring lagging indicators you need to measure leading indicators a lagging indicator is performance to goal right or performance to expectation i've got a million dollar goal for 2022 and i'm halfway through the year and i've sold a half a million dollars good on me i'm on target but there's no guarantee that i'm going to hit the million six months later because it's a lagging it's a look in the rearview mirror instead of a look through the windshield so he talks about what I work with my clients on, or what are we gonna measure that are leading indicators of success? So if you're selling software and you can't get anybody to do a demo, you're not gonna, they're never gonna buy your stuff. So let's measure demos, right? Cause that's a leading indicator. If I can get five people a week to do a demo, and I know that every time I do five people that are qualified, at least two of them are gonna close, I can start to scale. But if I'm just measuring how many people signed a contract, which is what 90% of companies measure is the stuff that already happened. Not the stuff that it's not the activity that leads to the result that they're measuring. It's the result that they're measuring. And it's just so aggravating for the salesperson and the sales leader. Cause here's what happens. I'm a sales manager and I'm talking to my salesperson and I'm like, Hey, where are we at? I keep leaving a voicemail message. I keep, that's not coaching. That'd be like me trying to learn how to play golf and asking my golf instructor to help me be a better golfer. And he says, great. Let me see your scorecard from your last round of golf. And I handed my scorecard from the last 18 holes I played. And he looks at the scorecard and he's examining it. And he looks and goes, you just need to putt better. That's your problem. You need to putt better. Like that's not coaching. That's not advice. You're looking at what happened yesterday to try and figure out how to fix what I want to have happen tomorrow. And it doesn't make any sense. So anyway, I don't know if that makes any sense or, or if it's logical or not, but that's what most companies are doing. They're just sell more stuff, be better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So you already answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How can you a business clarify and document their sales process so everyone can harness it?
0: In addition to the things I've already said. So I think you have to really understand what's the ideal customer look like. Demographic, that's the who they are, what they do. Geographic, that's your footprint. And psychographic, how they think. If you get that, then you focus on the need to know stuff. And then I think the other thing that's really critical is understanding what's your compelling event. What's that one thing that if you can get a customer or a prospect to do this, your conversion rates go up. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. I worked with a client years ago that was in the custom equipment business. So they sold machines that did custom packaging. And it was it's hard to explain, but they had this beautiful warehouse and they had this Skunk's Works like laboratory where they could like do all kinds of crazy stuff. And if they could get a customer to come to their building and take a tour of their facility and see how they actually create this equipment, their conversion rates went up to 80%. So one of them, we call that a compelling event. So what we started doing was we started, once we qualified an opportunity, instead of trying to sell them the right equipment, We tried to sell them on coming out to do a tour to the point where the average contract value was high enough. It started to make sense. It's like we're in Chicago, they're in LA, let's fly them to Chicago for a day. Let's send a car service to go pick them up and then bring them to our warehouse and take them on a full blown tour. It was worth spending two grand to secure a hundred thousand dollars worth of business, but that was the compelling event. So what's your compelling event? My compelling event is standing in front of a room full of salespeople doing sales training. If I can get a CEO to see what it is that I'm doing and how I do it and how I resonate with salespeople, I got a much better chance of having that CEO hire me. So my compelling event is to speak. They say the best way to get hired as a speaker is to have people hear you speak. So that's my compelling event. Sometimes I got to do it for free. Sometimes I got to reduce my rate. Sometimes it's a marketing thing, it doesn't matter. That's my compelling event. The manufacturer is just talking about their compelling event was getting somebody to come and tour their warehouse. I had one, I'll give you one other quick example. I worked with a client that sold this coolest product. It was these little casters that were, it was material handling equipment, but they could move tens of thousands of pounds of equipment with these little bitty casters that, that projected they shot air It's kind of like a air hockey table in reverse. Their compelling event would be to fly out or to go visit one of their clients with one of their sets of these little reverse air hockey table things and lift something really heavy in their warehouse, some heavy product and say, look how easy it is to pick this up and move it. And as soon as somebody saw that, as soon as a buyer saw that demonstration of the equipment, and they started to connect the value of it. Their conversion rates went to 92%. Wow. So find your compelling event and then figure out how to get people to the compelling event, qualified people to the compelling event, whatever the compelling event is. What's your compelling event? We were talking about this offline. You've got a compelling event. You yeah. get people to do this. And then all of a sudden they're going to want to do that. Yeah. The, this doesn't cost a lot of money. Yeah. There's a, a, consistency or an uh, overlap between digital marketing or marketing in general and B2B sales and lead generation. And that overlap is that, and the numbers may have changed, but if you go back and you start looking at things like David Ogilvy on advertising and stuff that was written 40, 50 years ago, it's not much different now, but the message was it takes eight impressions, marketing impressions before a consumer even knows you exist on the planet. Yeah. So you see that ad or that logo for the very first time. And it's not necessarily going to stick. Everybody wants it to be sticky and they'll pay bazillions of dollars for graphic design and all this stuff to have that big impact. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is that we're not built that way yeah. as human beings. So we need that steady impression. So you put out, even if I'm reaching out to a total stranger, cold calling, assuming I'm doing it professionally and assuming that they need what it is that I sell and assuming that I've, I'm doing it in a very professional manner. I might need to reach out and touch somebody six, seven, eight times before they even realize that I exist on the planet. It cracks me up how many people will reach out to me on LinkedIn and send me a message like, Hey, would you like to connect? And there's a little salesy thing going on and I'll look and I'm like, eh, in my space, maybe. Okay. And then they never reach back out again.
1: Yeah. And the ones
0: that reach out where I'm like, I might be interested in that, but not right now because the timing's not right or I am i saw it while I was multitasking, whatever. And I call them one hit wonders. <laughs> they hit me one time and then they wonder why I don't respond. And it's that fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh time. And it's the same thing that you're saying with digital marketing It's you've got to be consistent and you can't expect a big win with one activity yeah, or one touch if you're doing self-generated leads. Most of my clients are... They're either responding to inbound leads or they're out having to hustle and generate their own.
1: Well, yeah, I've had individuals come to me for lead generation and they say, I don't use social media, not Instagram, not Facebook, nothing. My ideal client is not on social media, maybe LinkedIn. And I depend on networking to get my clients. Now that COVID happened, I can't get them. My program started six figures for one program and I need to reach the CEO that has no budget. I'm like, great. We can do that. So give them a strategy. Here you go. Succeeded. Digital marketing, the definition of it is relationship building. It's building relationships online. And so the sales and digital marketing are absolutely entwined. And I think that a lot of people don't think in the B2B world that digital marketing is a part of it, but it absolutely is. And because they think They think digital marketing must be just social media or just a social media platform. Maybe it's not LinkedIn. Oh, I just do LinkedIn. That's social media. And there's so many social media things like nine, over 90% of executives go to LinkedIn for information that's reliable. And only 1% of people on LinkedIn are posting information. Yep. I started to use their on LinkedIn, the newsletter that you could publish. I've only published like maybe three and I already have about 200 people that are subscribed. And what I do at the end of that newsletter, I give tons of really valuable solutions. At the very end, if you want even more on this topic and in how to do it on a whole nother level or free templates, whatever it may be, subscribe to my newsletter. I recap in my newsletter and then I give free templates and even more information on that topic. So I'm giving, giving. And building that relationship. And so I think that there's that understanding just because there's been so much push of sales funnels. And while sales funnels are great and they work, they're not for every business.
0: I like to say marketing makes a promise and sales job is to deliver on the promise. Yeah. That's how it works. And you made a comment I want to circle back to, because I I agree with you hundred percent. There's two issues there. One is Will somebody find you if they do a search, whether it's a Google search or a LinkedIn search? And it's a rare person these days that is unfindable. There's not a whole lot of people out there that are digital ghosts. There's a few, but not a lot. So then the second question becomes, if somebody finds you as a service provider, whether you're trying to sell them something or market or whatever, it's not about if they can find you, it's about what they find. So you don't have a picture on your LinkedIn profile. You got that weird outline, or it's a horrible picture of you holding up a fish, wearing a, a t-shirt and a baseball hat, and you're selling software as a service for a hundred thousand dollars a year. There's, that's incongruent. Yeah. And it's amazing how frequently that happens. There's another fun fact I read the other day. The average LinkedIn profile picture is at least six years old. Oh, wow. My accountant and I'm not going to say his name, but my accountant, I found him on LinkedIn after I had met him. And I'm like, that's not the same guy. <laughs> They're totally different because his picture was like 10 years old. And just one other quick story if I can about LinkedIn. Yeah. Years ago, maybe 12, about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I was bored one day and I was going through that kind of midlife crisisy thing and kids are gone and I got a little disposable income. So I found myself at a Porsche dealership And I went on the lot. I was just tire kicking. I had no intention of buying a car. Saturday afternoon, kill some time. And the salesman did a fairly decent job. Most car salespeople are atrocious. The average life expectancy for a car salesperson is nine months. This guy had been at the same dealership for 22 years. Wow. He was probably 10 years older than me, maybe 15 years older than me. So we talked for a little while. We go out and test drive a car, and I'm not buying. I'm not. I'm not buying. We get out and he he does a pretty good job of sharing enough information with me to feel comfortable giving him my information. And fast forward about three days later. And again, this is a car dealer and I'm a sales professional. And he reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, Hey, Les, it's Bob from XYZ Porsche dealership. Thought you might like to connect on LinkedIn. I'm like, there you go. That's the first time. I've bought a lot of cars in my day. I've never had anybody reach out to me that was a car salesman on LinkedIn. So we connect. And about a week later, he sends me an in-mail message. And in the message, he said, hey, Les, I know you were here looking at a brand new, I think it was a Porsche Cayman. He goes, it's an excellent car. If you're interested, I'd be more than happy to take you on another test drive and work some numbers for you. However, just want to let you know, we just took in a lease return that's three years old, and he's given me all the specs and the details, and it hasn't hit the website yet. And this would make an excellent first Porsche. And I didn't buy that car either, but I've been telling that story for 12 years. There's a sales guy that sells cars in an industry that typically is just burn, turn and burn, turn and turn, turn and burn. That guy's still there. So he's been there almost 30 years. And he goes, Most of my clients are either repeat offenders. Or their walk ons that came onto my lot like you did. And I just nurtured that relationship through the channel that was most appropriate to them. He goes, I use LinkedIn, I use Facebook, I use wherever they're at. That's where I want to be.
1: Yeah.
0: And this guy's like in his seventies now. Yeah. He's crushing it. He doesn't post, but he uses those tools to communicate with people. And ultimately, I did buy a car from him. So anyway, it works. It doesn't matter what you sell, you got to be where the customers are at.
1: Yeah. The relationship building. And that's one thing that I think a lot of people miss out on because I've actually, I have other digital marketing agencies that follow me and have contacted me and they're like, you have an avalanche of clients and I'm in the non-avalanche <laughs> like how do you do it. How do I
0: create and- an avalanche?
1: Yeah. And my background, seven years at Deloitte in strategic relationship management, AKA sales and marketing. I was taught by the best of how to build relationships. And that's how we sold $50 million in products and services. And I think that was all I knew was Deloitte doesn't do ads. And when I started my agency, I was told, yeah, I could go and I could cold email 2000 people of a month. And maybe 15 of those might be interested in my products or services. And I thought if I build relationships, I'll get referrals from other people, maybe down the line, if they need help, they'll see me. So that's what I did. I just started to build relationships, authentic relationships, and I succeeded faster than any other agency ever has. Simply got 20 clients my very first month of my agency, and it was building relationships. And I think that's the biggest thing that people miss.
0: The number one message that I get from random people on LinkedIn are... Hey, Les, you should publish a book. Oh, I've
1: seen that. I've gotten and that I'm one. Like,
0: you know what? You're right. I did. And I'm <laughs> publishing a second one here about July of this year. And it's, it just is a swing and a miss. It does not resonate because what they're saying is, hey, I just sent this message out to 150,000 people that are in the training and coaching industry, hoping that it, some of it would stick. And I'm like, you are wasting my time. It's like whack-a-mole. Would you yeah, like right. to no, I don't. I don't want to connect because you bring no value to me when you do that. Yeah. It's so simple. So the number one area where they really struggle is pre-call preparation. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the, take the extra time and say, Hey, have they actually published a book? It doesn't, it, you found out in a millisecond. And then you can either skip me or you can tailor your message and say, Hey, would you be interested in learning how you might be able to sell more copies of your book? Cause yeah. that would get my attention. Yeah. It's. And then ironically, the second area where most salespeople come up short is follow-up, what happens after a sales call. So think about that for a second. What happens before you talk to a person and what happens after you talk to a person, not so very good. I have a pre-call preparation process that's really simple. It's, there's four pieces to it, just four. I said uh, earlier in the podcast, the shortest course on selling is ask questions and listen. It's really simple, but we have to ask relevant, thought out, well-prepared, well-practiced questions, and then we have to listen with intent the intent to understand what they're trying to accomplish, why it's important to them. So that is your methodology. Here's the tactics or the, yeah, tactics of planning a sales call. Still four questions, but we're asking and answering these four questions before the sales call. And here's the four questions. The very first one, what's the purpose of my call? Why am I reaching out to this person? What's my call objective? So you reached out to me and said, hey, Les, my name is Amy. Amy. And the purpose of my call, you didn't use that exact language, but you were direct and let me know why you were reaching out to me. I have a podcast. Here's the, here's what my audience, my demographic, I think you'd be a great guest. Are you interested? That was laser focused and you were crystal clear on your purpose. You were trying to secure me as a guest. Yes. And it worked because you were clear on the purpose of your call. So that's step one. If you, if you can't write down the purpose of your call, you don't have one. Don't make the call. Yes. If you write down the purpose of your call and it sounds stupid or self-serving, it is. Here yeah. are some examples. I'm just checking in, just following up, just stopping by, just touching base. Those are stupid purposes of the call and nobody's gonna call, take that call. They're not yeah. gonna return. Yeah. It. So be clear on the purpose of your call. What's the purpose of my call? And then in an effort to be crystal clear on the purpose of your call, as part of your preparation, here's the remaining three questions. Question number one, what do I already know? what do i already know about this person about this opportunity about this company and that's where your homework starts right that's going to linkedin it's using sales navigator it's checking your own gosh darn crm for call notes from two years ago it's checking your tribal network knowledge it's setting up a google alert or you type in a person's name and their company name and you hit news instead of all there's so much information out there so purpose of the call what do i already know that's the purpose of your call is your call objective what do i already know is where your homework starts The next question is, what do I need to know that I don't? And that's where your questions come from. And that's why every playbook I've ever built for a client has a need to know list. So purpose of the call, what do I already know? What do I need to know that I don't? That's where my questions come from. And then the last question is, what do I need to get this person, this prospect to share or admit to me? And that's what you're going to listen for. So in my world, if I can get a CEO to say, we're doing pretty good, but we need to get to the next level. And we're struggling to get to the, to go from 30 million to hundred million, for example. And I think the reason is because I don't know if I have the right people. I don't know if they're doing the right thing. That's what I need a CEO to share, or admit to me. Cause that's the problem that I solve. Yeah. From a pre-call preparation standpoint, you could literally take a scrap of paper this big and just map out a sales call B2B, B2C, doesn't matter. And go, what's the purpose of my call? What do I know? What do I need to know? What do I need to get them to share, or admit done? And you will be head and shoulders above 90% of all of your competitors just by doing that because nobody does it. You know what everybody does? They say, hold my beer, watch this. And they just pick up the phone and they start yakking. Anyway, I apologize. I get super lathered up about this stuff because it's so, I just hate when people give the profession of sales a bad name because so many people are doing it so poorly. Yeah, makes because the rest of us look bad.
1: Yeah. And then when they do it poorly, they really do bad. It is the same in the marketing world. There's so many out there that are selling snake oil. They're lying in their copy to sell stuff. They're not delivering. They say they're going to, they hold a webinar and they say they're going to share how to do X, Y, and Z. They don't actually share how to do X, Y, Z. They hold it back and say, buy this program. And then you'll know it gives all of it a bad name and it doesn't have to be that way.
0: I agree. I agree. It should be a lot simpler. Yeah. We overcomplicate things by trying to be tricky.
1: <laughs> so true. So, can you share a couple of your clients'
0: success stories? Sure. Before I do, I try and be fairly humble, and I think I do a good job of it. And the reality of it is, I'll share two really quick ones, maybe three. I didn't do, I didn't make them successful. I gave them the knowledge and information, and provided them the coaching and the training in order for them to be successful. And one of these clients is a steel company. So they make steel pipe and they sell steel pipe into the infrastructure segment. So roads, bridges, marinas, that kind of stuff. It's a commodity, it's sold by the pound and the price fluctuates, right? So they came to us, came to me about 10 years ago and they said, listen, we're doing $30 million a year. We have what Jim Collins would call a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. We wanna be a hundred million dollars in three years. I'm like, awesome. So I did my deal, understood what it was they were doing currently, applied some best practices, gave them tons and tons of training and tons of training around coaching and tons of training around sales leadership and sales process. And i worked with them for a year. Fast forward three years from the start date, they did $98 million. So they came very close to hitting their big, hairy, audacious goal of 3Xing in three years, right? 30 million to 100 million and quite frankly they hit their goal in terms of the tonnage of product that they sold but the pricing pressure had, they that's why they missed the 100 million a for effort right that same company that was 10 years ago that same company rehired me 6 months ago and said we're doing 200 million dollars a year and we want to be at a billion in 5 years like, wow that's a big area audacious goal they finished this year at 300 million and we built them a brand new sales playbook where we built some recruiting processes we did all that stuff and i have no doubt that in five years that company is going to be doing a billion dollars in gross sales and here's my point in all of that the ceo of that company is one of my best references when somebody says hey do you have any references i can talk to i always send them to the ceo of this company that i just talked about the steel company and one of the reasons that i send my clients there as a referral source is because the ceo of that company says the same thing to everybody as it relates to his success and his work with me and here's what he says the stuff that Les taught us and the stuff that Les helped us build is really powerful if you're willing to do the work if you're not willing to do the work you can go ahead and hire him he'll cash your checks he'll build the tools but if you're not willing to do the work with him and put those tools into play You just wasted your time and your money and i want to tie that success story back to something that you asked me earlier about the ideal profile of a customer i keep circling back to demographic geographic let's psychographic that's how this guy thinks he's show me how to do it and i will do it and if it works and it's productive i'll do it twice as much so i can gain twice as much so i love that success story and really enjoy working with them there's one other success story i had with a b2c company. So they sold and still sell all-inclusive wedding packages. And when they hired me, I'm like, this is not my space. It's a B2C sale. It's a one-call close. It's very emotional. And they had heard me in an open seat workshop. They liked what they heard. And they talked me into working with them. And it wasn't like they had to twist my arm, but I was very skeptical that I was going to be able to help them. It's a one-hour sales call where the bride and groom come to their venue, and they take a tour and they get a customized proposal for their special day. And I was amazed at how much of my content, almost all of it had direct application, even in that condensed, shortened, one call close. Cause I have clients that have six month sales cycles. And here's the other thing, but weddings, nobody tire kicks a wedding, right? Nobody goes to tour a venue and get a proposal just to kill an afternoon on a Saturday. They're highly qualified buyers. Yeah. And the average ticket was somewhere between twenty dollars and $25,000 at the time. They were down like eight, nine million bucks. So we created a playbook for them. We created, they we called it, they, they called their sales call a personal consultation or PC for short. So we called, we created the PC playbook. Now, for my big clients that are B2B, long sales cycles, their playbooks can be 40, 50, 60 pages long. This one was one page printed front and back. And it took the one hour sales call all the way through all the steps of the sales cycle in one page, one document following the same format, asking questions, listening, what do I need to know? What do I need to get them to share or admit? And they're within three months of working that playbook, their conversion rates went from 27%. So 27 out of hundred PCs would convert to 36%. So what is was nine points. So they picked up nine more transactions for every hundred deals. It added a million dollars a year to their bottom line like that. Same number of leads were coming through. They're just converting more of them because they're asking better questions because they have a process. Yeah. So not unlike the steel company, that was 10 some odd years ago. Fast forward, they hired me just before COVID. They hired me again. They said, listen, we've got 80 properties. We're doing $80 million a year. We're hiring salespeople in buckets. We got a sales team of 250 people spread across the country. And I think it's time to update our playbook. I'm like, great. So we did. And the playbook, it's still one page, but we supported that one page with lots of training and lots of onboarding content. And I just literally, I want to say a week ago, the vice president of sales for that company reached out to me and said, hey, I haven't talked to you in a while. Wanted to see how you were doing the COVID check-in how's your business? And I said, how are you guys doing? And she said, we had the best year we've ever had in spite of COVID because we're following this process. And again, I didn't do the work. I just gave them the roadmap and I'd ask them questions. They'd answer it. I challenged their answers and they built the tool. They did the work and now they're following in the process and they're reaping the rewards. And those are the best success stories of all. I've had clients that have bought playbooks and they're like, this is cool. And I put it on a shelf and they go, look what we built, but they don't use it. They're not doing the work and they're still just spinning in place. So anyway, those are two of my favorites.
1: I love that. So if you were able to give yourself one piece of advice when you first started out, what would it
0: be? <laughs> it's actually two pieces of advice. First piece of advice, read more. Learn, Know what business you're in and read everything you can get your hands on about that business. So in my world, it would have been sales in your world of digital marketing. And the second piece of advice that goes along with that is write more. It's okay. Reading books is great. Readers are leaders, right? I love to read. Now I read right now I'm reading four different books and it takes a while to read them for it. Cause there's one book I read in the mornings during the week. There's another one I read at night when I'm trying to go to sleep. And I listen to stuff on audio when I'm driving. But my point is that It's not just enough to read the book. It's how you go about extracting what you learned from that book. If you read a book, if you bought my book for 19 bucks on Amazon and you just took one thing out of it because you wrote down that one thing or you wrote in the book, this is good stuff, I'm gonna do this. It's worth the money. But if you just read a book and you're not taking notes or you're not writing anything down, you're not capturing those big ideas or idea from that book, or even just how can I put this into action? It was just entertainment for the sake of reading. Yeah. I read a lot of books. I don't, I'm not any smarter. I don't do anything any different, but I've been entertained. So read and write more. I wished I would have started writing years ago as opposed to waiting until 10 years ago to start blogging. And even then I don't write enough. I try and write every day now a little bit.
1: Yeah. It's so important to do it, read and then do read and apply.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I had
1: I read one book that completely had changed my life, and it was because I applied it. And I remember someone saying to me, "You didn't just read a book." I'm like, "Sure, I didn't. I read it and did it." And that's the key. Like you have to, you actually, you can't just fill your brain with all the knowledge. And I think that at some point, all of us are a little bit guilty about this, where we've got all the knowledge, we know all the stuff. And I actually had this thought in my mind yesterday. I said to, I thought to myself, some people were asking things like on my social media, like how do I pick a niche, all these different random things. And, and some people not knowing who I was or what I know. And I thought to myself, I'm pretty guilty with, in some ways, not putting out the information that I know, because to me, it's common knowledge. And then I think, why would they think, why would they know that I know all this unless I'm sharing it? And so it's very easy to like suck all the information in. And then now that you have the information, you think it's common knowledge, but yeah, it's applying it and sharing it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And for me, that writing piece, that's the thing that I have to do to bridge the gap between there's actually a word for it. I think it's called telekenny or something like that. I could have it wrong, but it's, the definition is easier to understand. It's bridging the, I call it the knowledge gap. So how do you bridge that gap between knowing how to do something and actually doing it? And for me, the way I bridge that gap is if I read something and it resonates with me, if I write it down and I write it down in an action type item, I need to ask this question on every sales call, or I need to do this when this happens, and I write it down in in the form of an action statement, it solidifies in my head a little bit more. And then the very next time I'm in that scenario, I'm much more likely to apply what I learned by reading because I bridged the gap by writing it down in some way, shape or form. So I've converted the knowledge into action. And then it's the action that generates the results that we're looking for. So good stuff. stuff.
1: So if there's someone that's listening that would love to get a hold of you uh, and work <laughs> with you, what's the best way to contact you?
0: My cell phone number, if you Google my name, Les L E S Lent L-E-N-T, I've spent a lot of time branding that the hell out of my name. And you'll find my phone number, you'll find my website. You can find me on LinkedIn. My cell phone number is a matter of public record. So 916-474-0163. Call me, text me, email me, reach out to me on LinkedIn. My website is lesslent.com. My email address is less at I've got another e-learning website called Accelerated Sales, which is right over here. But the best way is to go through my website. You'll learn everything you need to know or don't want to know about me very quickly by just going to LesLent.com. And if you wanted to get a hold of me, there's a myriad of ways to do.
1: Perfect. I'll put those links down below. Les, thank, thank you me. so much for coming on today and sharing your expertise.
0: Thanks for having me. I had a blast. I should do more of these.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. If you're listening, and you want more information about this particular podcast and upcoming shows, you can visit a call to thrive.com. Thank you everyone. And have a wonderful week.